This is Neijing Now, prioritizing well-being. Neijing is the vitality that shields us from disease. Neijing Now, placing and taking responsibility for the health of the individual and the planet. From molecular biology to global ecology, from political, social economics to psychology and spirituality. Neijing Now, demystifying medicine, empowering host resistance. We can be found on the web at neijingnow.org. N-E-I-J-I-N-G-N-O-W.org. I'm Dr. Jayashree Chandra, and I welcome you to another edition of Exploring Neijing Now. In this episode, I bring you Vaidya Mandar Pedikar on Ayurveda in Oral Health. Maintain the health of the gums. The health of the teeth will follow. Dr. Greg Goddard on acupuncture in dentistry. Most acupuncture needles are painless. And writer Richard Moringer on his book, Poems for Teeth. And I wrote a poem to all four wisdom teeth, but they turned out to be these genius girls who, once they get together, they can solve anything. They're very special. I'm speaking with Vedya Mandar Bedekar from Pune. He's an Ayurvedic practitioner who's visiting Berkeley. He's agreed to talk to us about traditional Ayurvedic means of keeping the oral cavity healthy through Ayurveda. Welcome to Neijing Now. Thank you, Jayasri. Uh, thank you for including Ayurvedic perspective. Tell me some of the things that Ayurveda recommends for maintaining oral hygiene. Ayurveda doesn't start about uh, cleaning oral cavity to maintain oral health. Interesting part is Ayurveda believes that if a person has had a clear motion that morning, that will add to the chances of having better oral health. So, wait a minute. So, you're saying that Ayurveda doesn't actually talk about cleaning the teeth or cleaning the oral cavity, but rather relies on having a really good bowel movement? Well, this is very interesting. Let me put it more precisely. Ayurveda doesn't say no to cleaning the teeth or gums, but Ayurveda says that if a person has a clear bowel and cleans the teeth, compared to another person who didn't have clear bowel and cleans the teeth, so the first person will have better oral health. Can you tell me why? Because Ayurveda believes in ama, and ama is sort of toxin, which is an outcome of indigestion. Ama is like an accumulation of toxic waste, you might say, in the digestive tract. Yeah. So when uh, you have a really decent, complete evacuation, then most of that ama leaves the body, and that would help maintain oral health. So are there specific things that Ayurveda recommends in regards to oral hygiene? Yes, of course, there will be another big surprise to the Western community. Most of the toothpastes available today are a sweet in taste. Maybe there is some marketing technique behind it. Not maybe. <laughs> there is. We have the same toothpaste in India. Unfortunately, Indians are now following Western lifestyle. But what Ayurveda says about it is pretty clear. Ayurveda says that three tests should be used for maintaining oral health. And these tests are pungent, bitter, and astringent. This is an interesting concept in Ayurveda which may not be familiar to our audience. Ayurveda really goes into the sensory experience of 
everything. And the idea, as far as I understand, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the sensory experience creates a neurohormonal immunological response. When you speak about the different tastes, it's actually the taste that will produce a response that would keep your mouth healthy. I appreciate the words in which you put it. The mouth is prone to be sticky. It has mucus in it. It doesn't matter we call it kafu or mucus, but it is sticky for sure. Because Ayurveda is a highly logical science, Ayurveda prefers only those tastes which are opposite stickiness, which contain no sticky element in it. To balance out the stickiness. If, for example, we want to clear a table, how will we clear it? Whether we will add sugar water on it or we will use something which will dry it up. So you're saying that if you put sweet tasting toothpaste in your mouth, then that is actually adding to the body's response to make the mouth more sticky. Exactly. In fact, we are inviting uh, diseases by using the sweet thing uh, for maintaining oral health. Okay, let's throw out our toothpaste and what are we going to use instead? Any herb which contains either or more of these three tests. The simplest I would like to quote is neem because neem is known worldwide now. But there are a few more like uh, trifala, a very famous Ayurvedic medicine. And for that matter, even turmeric powder, curcuma can be used because it has the bitter taste in it. Oh, fantastic. Interesting. Yes, the beauty of Ayurvedic philosophy lies that it doesn't stress on the use of the same herb, material herb. It goes after the attributes of the herb. So if some other herb, for example, a locally available herb here in US, even if it is bitter in taste or astringent in taste, Ayurveda will say, okay, go ahead and use it for oral health. Oh, fantastic. So then we're getting into local and sustainable and we don't have to import things from other places or grow things that aren't supposed to be grown here. That's beautiful. Uh, that's the good part of it. And the bad part is even if a person comes uh, in the market and says that this is an Ayurvedic paste, sweet in taste and use it for oral health, that will be... That would be great marketing. Yeah, great marketing in good words. So the thing is, is that Nobody really wants to put a, something bitter in their mouth first thing in the morning or for last thing at night. Yeah, I agree. It's true. But if one doesn't want to put bitter things in the morning, one or the other day one has to put bitter medicines. Oh, but we sugar up the medicine. That's the problem with the medicine nowadays. The question is whether we prefer health or we prefer our personal likes and dislikes. Ayurveda has clear concepts that if we want to prefer health, even if there are some things which we don't like. They may be temporarily uncomfortable. There are no shortcuts. And when Ayurveda says bitter, it is not necessarily very bitter like karela. Uh, bitter gourd. Yeah, or something like that. But it should contain bitter taste, which may be less expressive, but for sure it shouldn't contain sweet taste. Let's take turmeric. That's pretty readily available everywhere, or even trifala is getting more commonly available everywhere. How would you actually use it? Because Ayurveda is an age-old science. It has a long history of thousands of years. In the past, what they used to do is they used to pick uh, the uh, small sticks from the plant containing either of these three tests, then crush the tips of the sticks, sort of toothbrush, but freshly prepared toothbrush, and they used to use it. Uh, my mother, when we went to India as a child, they would buy these twigs of neem and they would chew on the ends of it and they would just keep chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing. And Is that what you're referring to? Uh, yes, but I'll try to relate it to modern lifestyle. So 
chewing of the tip of the uh, neem twig is not only way to do it what is important is either of these three tastes go into our mouth well the neem twig is very bitter for example in today's case even if a person uses toothbrush that is admissible what is important is maybe neem powder or turmeric powder or trifala powder can be used to clean the mouth that is first tip second tip is ayurveda strongly recommends that maintain the health of the gums the health of the teeth will follow beautiful maintain the health of the gums and the health of the teeth will follow it's like maintain the health of the roots of the tree and the flowers and fruits will automatically come exactly it reminds me about a advertising war in india that because of the increasing market of ayurvedic toothpastes or tooth powders one of the mncs mncs multinational corporations one of the big companies yes so it started campaigning that if you rub something a rough powder on your teeth it is not good for the enamel of the teeth it's a truth but ayurveda has said clean your gums with these tests and not rub your teeth with this rough powder so you're saying that ayurveda would recommend taking trifala powder and rubbing it on the gums that would help maintain the health of the gums then subsequently the teeth will just naturally grow strong yes does ayurveda want you to like brush your teeth i mean you want to like remove the food particles and the plaque and when you chew on the neem twig kind of gets frayed at the end and you use the frayed twig to kind of brush around or can you explain that a little bit more over the centuries there has been a socio cultural corruption in the use of ayurvedic tooth products so basically what was meant was one should make gargles for example to clear out the whatever secretions are there then one should use either of these three tests apply them mainly to the gums and during the gargling process it will also cover up the teeth but one shouldn't directly rub it on the enamel of the teeth what are you gargling with again decoction of uh, either of these medicines or to end maybe plain water or lukewarm water according to season and you spit it out yes yes spit it out what do you do for the actual teeth we don't need to use any special product for actual teeth because they used to use finger for just cleaning the teeth I know it will be very difficult to digest because people are talking about flossing and plaque and what not. Yeah, I was just going to say what about flossing? But because anyway as I have already said Ayurveda is not reductionist medicine so we have to go a step behind. If one sticks to the digestive capacities number 1. If one eats in time, if one cleans the oral cavity after every food intake. Everybody knows that one has to brush twice, once in the morning, once in the night. and keep eating all day yes <laughs> i appreciate that but the actual quotation in ayurveda says i'll say it in sanskrit but i'll translate it immediately prataha bhuktva cha prata means early in the morning and bhuktva cha means after every intake of food even a sip of tea or coffee or a small piece of chocolate doesn't matter after every intake of food you have to clean the teeth means gums by the same procedure wow beautiful if this is followed i don't think that there will be chance to deposit plaque or accumulate plaque and if it is not accumulated at all then i don't think harsh procedures like cleaning or using instruments are necessary wow you know it's interesting i remember my grandmother used to rinse her mouth after every meal see a lot of people in india do that but nobody does that here but you know here's the thing about that is that you've just had a great piece of chocolate cake and then you put something bitter in your mouth nobody wants to do that 
people like eating dark chocolates, right? Because they like chocolates. I mean, dark chocolate is bitter. Yeah, I think so. But when they consider that something I'm putting in mouth is bitter and it's a medicine, they dislike it. If something is there which assures us that it will help us to live a long, healthy life, maintaining teeth till say 17th year of age, etc., people will do it. Secondly, I repeat, bitter is not the only test that is recommended. If astringent test is applied and enough gargling with even plain water is done, it will turn into sweetish feeling. But it needs to be felt first. It needs to be experienced. My parents, they don't have cavities and they have all their teeth. And if you agree, they used to cut the walnut without using any instrument. Yeah, they have very strong teeth too. They can just bite into anything and, and their teeth are completely unharmed. And they didn't grow up with toothbrushes or toothpaste. So you said it. And now we need to have pediatric dentists in metro cities. We presume that even the school-going kids will have dental problems. My question is why? Revolution always uh, should be gradually coming. If people at all really like to go for oral health, they may continue with the use of toothbrush, but they must stop the use of any sweet product. That is for sure. Any sweet oral product? Yes, for, for maintaining oral health. You get to have something sweet now and yeah. again to eat. As a part of food, Ayurveda says that eat sweet to begin the food and not to end the food. So having dessert at the end of the meal is another thing which is uh, creating problems to the oral health. Okay. I know that Ayurveda recommends that you eat fruit 20 minutes before you eat. Anything which is sweet or sour or matured or fleshy will tend to increase what we call as kapha, but we can take it as stickiness, anxiousness of the body. Anxiousness. Sweet taken at the end of the meal or fruits taken at the end of the meal will tend to create more stickiness in the mouth cavity. If at all sweet is to be taken, it must be to start the meal with. Why, why do you want the stickiness before rather than after? Because if it is after, then it will leave its effect. Does it make you gain weight too? Yes, of course. To be put in modern terms, obesity, diabetes, some tumors, not all, and any physical growth in the body. And of course, bronchopulmonary disorders up to pneumonia. All these can be traced back to this increased and invited stickiness. I think I get it now. So if you eat the sweet at the end of the meal, then you have nothing to counterbalance it after you've eaten the sweet. And so that increases the cuff, the earth, sticky, moist, uh, heavy quality of your body. And that is translating into diabetes and obesity and the whole metabolic syndrome. Very interesting. What about this tongue scraping? I, I know that in India you see tongue scrapers and you hear people gagging in the morning, at 4 o'clock in the morning and all this stuff. Uh, it's good that uh, you raised this question, Jayasri. Again, there are two reasons. First is that tongue is considered as the mirror of the stomach. Well, in allopathy, we don't talk about the tongue as a mirror of the stomach. We don't talk about the tongue at all, actually, <laughs> unless there's something wrong with the tongue. If not, then I would strongly recommend that we must look into the tongue. Tongue cleaning is, I would say, not a must, but it is recommended. Just as a diagnostic sign or because it actually then has some other impact? Yeah, it has both diagnostic value and uh, preventive value, I will say. If even after cleaning with something, if the tongue remains coated, then it's a clear proof that the digestion is not good. That is number one, the diagnostic importance. As far as the preventive aspect is concerned, 
tongue is the location of two organs in the body one is the organ of taste so tongue is the material location of the taste perception and secondly tongue is the material location of the organ of speech as far as the oral health is concerned if the tongue is cleaned tests will be better perceived and better perception of taste ensures better digestion like you uh, clean your eyeglasses so you can see better exactly the question is whether people want to seek a clearer picture a clearer perception of the food that you eat oh, very nice very very beautiful does it have any treatment value so say if you do have a build up of amla in your digestive tract does cleaning the tongue actually help to clean out the digestive tract no it's a good question i would say because people like to have shortcuts nobody should take it as if that if they just clean the tongue that means the amla is gone it won't help the best way to get rid of the digestive toxins that is amla is to reduce or regulate the food intake okay so i grew up brushing my teeth uh with a plastic toothbrush and with sweet toothpaste and i've also become a flosser my gums and my teeth are pretty healthy but i always have an issue with with the plastic part of it you know if you think about 9 billion people on the planet using a plastic toothbrush uh and changing it at least every 2 or 3 months i just imagine this mountain of plastic toothbrushes and and they don't even go into the recycle bin then added on top of that is the plastic strings that we use to floss the teeth where do those plastic strings go and what is the ayurvedic perspective on how to actually clean the surfaces of the teeth as far as environment is concerned or ecology is concerned no doubt that ayurveda is a is an environmental friendly science whether one should use a plastic brush or not i think i have answered it partly that what is important is use some substance having either of these three tests sushruta is considered as the father of surgery sushruta says that finger is the best machine so brush your teeth with the finger yes And how do you floss no because flossing is a need which mankind has invited in last couple of centuries i would say so what ayurveda expects is use astringency astringency is not necessarily a single test it's an action so if astringency is used there will be better cementing and the teeth will be more uniformly placed less gaps and no plaque you're saying that you have to use the astringent taste in childhood in order to grow your teeth with less gap yes great is there anything else you'd like to add only in case of diseases there is a strange route of application of medicine which is called as nasya in sanskrit nasya is a nasal administration of medicine ayurveda says that even if the medicine is inserted or administered through nose it will help to have stronger teeth interesting first of all what is this medicine that you put in through the nose medicines keep on differing for example sesame oil can be put ghee can be put but in winter seasons one has to be careful because ghee can go in and clog even milk can be used but only in some patients who are more pitta type or more heat dominated in what cases would you use this treatment for example if a person has some sensory perception related problem clubbed with teeth problem we will use this mode of treatment that is nasya if it's only tooth problem or related to oral cavity then there is no need to do nasya then uh, using either of these tests clubbed with ga- regular gargling and regulation of food intake will suffice for how does ayurveda deal with cavities 
फर्स्ट ऑफ ऑल इफ आयुर्वेदिक डेली रेजिम इज फॉलोड चांसेस ऑफ कैविटीज आर यू कैन से रिड्यूस बाय नाइन्टी परसेंट बट नो बड इज डूइंग दैट यू नो दैट आयुर्वेद हैज मेनी स्ट्रॉन्ग मेडिसिन विच इट कॉल्स तीक्ष्ण दे हैव पेनिट्रेटिंग एक्शन दे कैन बी यूज टू टैकल विद द कैविटीज द सिंपलेस्ट वन आई वुड लाइक टू सजेस्ट विच इज अवेलेबल हियर इन अमेरिका बट नॉट अ नेटिव ऑफ हियर इज एक्चुअली अ गम ऑफ अ ट्री कॉल्ड एसफोडिटा हिंग आई नो हिंग हिंग इज सो पेनिट्रेटिंग एंड सो स्ट्रॉन्ग दैट इफ द कैविटी इज फॉर्म और डिकेइंग टिप्स इज फाउंड इफ द हिंग विच कम्स इन क्रिस्टल फॉर्म्स एज यू नो इवन इफ अ स्मॉल क्रिस्टल इज पुट हियर इट विल स्टॉप फर्दर डिकेइंग ऑफ द टिथ एंड अगेन टर्मरिक पाउडर कैन बी यूज टू प्रिवेंट डिकेइंग ऑफ टिथ to prevent it now turmeric is used to prevent it but you're saying that asafetida or hing can actually stop the progression of a cavity in terms of filling up a cavity you have to go to the allopathic dentist in fact that's the reason why ayurveda has uh, recommended to prevent uh, cavities or gaps because once it is done it is there ayurveda in general is a very preventive uh, modality i mean the emphasis is on prevention So great this is very interesting I really appreciate talking to you so I'm throwing out my toothpaste and I'm going to go get some uh, trifla powder Ooh. Thank you just a last suggestion Ayurveda also says that excess use of sour things and particularly using sour things at night is inviting dental problems so anything which is sour so tomato lemon lemonade vinegar even if the gargling is done and even if the teeth are cleaned with astringent thing that doesn't guarantee dental health because sour thing is to be avoided at night time very interesting whatever ayurveda has said is time tested it of course has a logical or philosophical background really fascinating conversation it's been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for participating in naging now thank you jaisi that was vedya mandar bedikar from pune india din tarikita di na धान धान तकिट धतिट धतरक धतिटे कत गदि गिन गिर नगते ने तार धार धतरक धतिटे कत गदि गिन किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता धान धान तकिट धतिट धतरक धतिटे कत गदि गिन गिर नगते ने तार धार धतरक धतिटे कत गदि गिन किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता ता किरत गदेता Dr. Greg Goddard is a public health dentist retired from 35 years of service at the Native American Health Center and the University of California San Francisco. He used and taught the use of acupuncture in dental care and has a lot to share with us about the prevention of dental decay. Greg, welcome to Naging Now. Thank you. My pleasure. Tell me about how you became a public health dentist. I did a fellowship in the late 1960s at UCSF and one of the doctors who was doing the fellowship with me was going to Alcatraz Island during the Indian occupation and asked me if I would come over and check on some of the kids that had dental problems. So I started going over there once a week. 
but me going out there once a week didn't quite work. And then the government came in and threw the Indians off. A year or two later, the Native American Health Center started in the mission. I started working there in 1974 and worked there for over 35 years. Wow, fantastic. Congratulations. What are some key points that you took away from working with that population in terms of preventing oral health disease? We were very strong on prevention. Indian Health Service worked closely with the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and was at the forefront of a lot of the prevention techniques in dentistry. What would you say are the preventive practices? Well, we started using uh, sealants. What does that mean? Sealants are where you take a resin that you can paint on the teeth, and it goes into the pits and hardens and prevents them from decaying. So put the rosin in the beginning of a cavity, or it's like... You put it in before the cavities start. One of the places that cavities start are in the pits and fissures, we call them. The grooves of the teeth. The grooves of the teeth, because food and bacteria get in there, and that's where decay starts. And the other place it starts is between the teeth. To do that, we started again using a fluoride varnish. Interesting. So then kids can eat whatever they want. Chew gum, eat candy, not brush their teeth. (laughs) Uh, No. Diet is very important also. That's much harder to change people's diet and habits. But it must be hard to get kids to come in and, and get this stuff put on their teeth too. It is, but some of these things can be done by community health workers. The medical doctors also can do that. Interesting. I've never heard of a, a medical doctor doing anything related to the teeth except maybe injecting a long-acting pain medication or maybe prescribing an antibiotic until the patient could get to the dentist. Yeah, that's about it. These are pediatricians that are interested in preventing disease in children. And dental caries, it's actually an infectious disease of bacteria that's transmitted mainly from mother to offspring. That's so interesting. I've never heard of that, that a cavity would be a contagious disease. Yes. When I was in Indian Health, we would get people from the reservations, which would have no cavities. It's almost unheard of. And over the time that I worked, they ended up having decay rates as high as 50% of the children having rampant dental decay. Why did this happen? We thought it was just because they got the white man's diet, candy and sugar and soda pop. That was probably a small part of it, but the other was like the smallpox in the blanket that infected Native Americans. You know, at the time of the original occupation, the bacteria were brought in that caused dental decay, got into the population, and were transmitted from mother to offspring and it just spread. And the way they found that out was they could actually look at the bacteria and genetically see where they came from, and they were the same as the mothers. That is so interesting. So is it from sharing food or from kissing or from the birth canal, or what's the story on that? It's from sharing food. If the mother kisses the baby, if the mother tastes the bottle and gives it to the baby. The decay had to be brought into the population. And as the conditions of poor diet took over, 
then it was able to spread. Right. So you need the bacteria plus the poor diet. If you just have the bacteria alone and a good diet, you might be spared. Or if you have a bad diet and no bacteria, you might also be spared. You also have a genetic resistance of the person. So you could have three kids in a family and uh, two of them, the bacteria would not have much effect on it. And the other one would, all the teeth would rot out. And probably something to do with just baseline nutritional status. I mean, the kind of food that you eat when you're growing up really has an impact on how your teeth develop. That's correct. So based on that, it sounds like one of the preventive practices that we could employ is to not eat food after other people have tasted it. Uh, no. To stop the passing on of bacteria from mother to offspring is not practical. The psychological implications of not kissing your infant would be much greater than any dental problems. What's your opinion on the fluoride controversy? Fluoride is a natural element. It's in all foods and all water supplies unless you drink distilled water. In large concentrations, it could be deleterious to your teeth causing staining and causing them to turn brown. In an optimum concentration, it has a very good preventive effect. A lot of the natural water supplies have a natural amount of fluoride that works very well. Our water supply comes from the snow melt out of the Sierras through Yosemite Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, so it has a very low fluoride content. The city adds fluoride. Indian Health used to add fluoride to the water supplies of small villages and such, but given that it's very hard to monitor and it needs to be monitored because if it's not controlled, it can be poisonous. In fact, in Alaska, in a small village of 30 or 40 people, the person that was supposed to monitor the water supply didn't show up to work for a month or two or three or a year, and the concentration of fluoride got very high, and an elderly man actually died in part because of the fluoride. Just like if you're putting chlorine in a water supply or any other chemical, it needs to be controlled. Wow, that's quite a story. Do you also have an opinion about the mercury controversy? Yes. Like fluoride, mercury is a metal found in nature. It was first discovered as being toxic when they, they used to use mercury in the hats. And the people that worked making hats at the turn of the century would become basically crazy from mercury toxicity. Mercury has been used in California in the gold mines. It's very heavily washed down through the watershed into the bay, into the fishery. So there's a lot of mercury toxicity in fish. In the food chain, the big fish eat the little fish. Mercury becomes concentrated. Mercury is not eliminated from your body, but stays in the body basically for your lifetime. Tuna and swordfish have high concentrations of mercury. Mercury is a poison. So that doesn't sound like something you want to put in your mouth. No, uh, you don't want to put it in your body. But we used to have mercury, called it quicksilver. 
and we used to put it in our hands and play with it. Mercury is in its pure form is a liquid. And in that form, like most metals, it's hard to absorb in the body. You could hold silver or gold or lead in your hand and it's not absorbed into your body. Whereas if you breathe lead fumes from lead gasoline, you can get that into your body or if you eat lead paint, can be absorbed. Mercury is not absorbed in any significant amount through silver amalgam fillings. It's a, a silver, copper alloy that has mercury in it. If you took that mercury I was talking about holding in your hand and you heated that up with a flame and vaporized it, it would probably kill you. It would be that toxic. Mercury in a form is a filling. It's not absorbed into the body in any significant way. Mercury is taken into the body mostly through our food sources. Mercury is used as a pesticide with seeds. They put mercury on it to keep fungus off of it so it's into the water supply. The main way that it is absorbed into the body from fillings is when you grind out the fillings because that heats it up and vaporizes it. People that have a lot of silver fillings with mercury in them and are told that they need to have those taken out, that process of grinding out all those fillings is giving them a lot more mercury than they would get than if they just left them in. So they should just wait until the filling either falls out because it's old or that tooth just needs to be pulled or whatever. For some other reason, then they could put in the other kind of filling. Right. And the other kind of filling, which is a composite resin, is also toxic. There have been studies that found that with children that have these so-called white non-mercury fillings have significantly more behavioral problems than kids that don't have them. They're not without toxicity, and they are basically fiberglass which we know is a pretty toxic substance. Yeah, you don't want to inhale fiber loss either. Yes. Okay, well, thanks for clarifying that for us. You're welcome. So, Dr. Goddard, I understand that you've written a book called TMJ, The Jaw Connection. Tell us about it. I wrote that in about 1990 for patients' jaw problems as basically a joint problem. It can lead to chronic pain, and there's lots of self-care techniques that people can do to manage those so that they don't have to undergo surgery or extensive costly treatments. There was a need for that, and I wrote this book. So what kinds of tips are in there? Like any other joint in the body, when it's sore, you rest it. If it hurts, you don't do things that hurt, such as eat hard food and chew bubble gum and things like that. You can ice it. You can heat it use anti-inflammatories when it gets bad. You can exercise it. All the basic treatments that you would do for any other joint. Nice. Neck stretching, uh, those kinds of things? Yes. When the jaw muscles get tight, the neck muscles get tight. So there's a relationship between the neck and the jaw. So stretching, relaxing techniques, all those things can help. Fantastic. You know, I started clenching my teeth in uh, my internship year. It's only been this year that I finally got relief. And I've tried lots of different things. The two things that really did it was 
deep meditation and yoga practice. Uh, yes, both of those are good. And just the mantra of saying to yourself, teeth apart, jaw relaxed. Just keep saying that over and over. And doing it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wonderful. So if somebody wants to buy your book, where do they go to find it? It's published by Aurora Press. Great. Thank you for writing it. So, Greg, you're a dentist, and you also trained in acupuncture for dentists. And I'd like to know how it is that acupuncture plays a role in dentistry. My use of acupuncture has been for the control of pain, mostly for TMJ pain. I have also used it in order to take out teeth. Most acupuncture needles are painless. I know a lot of people who actually have a fear of needles, and they say that that's one of the reasons that they don't want to go to acupuncture. In doing research in acupuncture, I had to devise a sham acupuncture. And what we did is we cut off the sharp end of a needle and touched the skin of patients that couldn't see that, and they could not tell the difference. Okay, and then what did you find out? You had a basically a control group with the sham acupuncture, which the needles were blunt and they didn't actually puncture the skin, and you had the experimental group, which was getting real acupuncture. Did you use that knowledge to do some other studies on acupuncture? Uh, yes. Then we used that technique for our control groups when we treated some patients using acupuncture and others we used the placebo or fake sham acupuncture and we found that the real acupuncture had a effect for chronic TMJ jaw face pain. Oh great, so would you actually put the needles right into the jaw? Basically one of the places was in the hand which is a point between the thumb and forefinger which is called hoku. It's one of the most powerful analgesic points on the body and then we would also use some local points on the muscles that were painful. Right. Hoku. Hoku is a very powerful point for pain. A lot of people just in the general public are starting to know about Hoku, and I see people give each other advice when they start to get a headache. Oh, just rub this point between the thumb and the forefinger. A lot of the Asian patients, before you gave them a local anesthetic injection, they would be rubbing their Hoku point. That's great when something becomes sort of a public knowledge and people start using it for taking care of themselves. Yes. So let me ask you this. Now, UCSF, for example, has a whole center for orofacial pain. Are they offering acupuncture there based on the studies you've done? No, they aren't since I retired. Congratulations on your retirement. And we live in the Bay Area and there are literally thousands of acupuncturists. I mean, I'm sure they could find someone to continue to offer acupuncture as a treatment for orofacial pain. Uh, yes. Most acupuncturists are very good at treating TMJ pain. I know the school, the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine in San Francisco offers it at a low cost, and I would encourage people to try it. Does the center up at UCSF refer people to acupuncture? Yes. Great. And will insurance pay for it? Uh, no. But the studies show that it works. Yes. <laughs> but uh, most insurances don't pay for acupuncture. But for instance, Kaiser offers acupuncture. They do not advertise it. But if people talk to their primary care, they can get it also. 
So other than TMJ, are there other conditions that you have used acupuncture for? Drilling teeth, taking teeth out, or root canals, etc. Trigeminal neuralgia is a nerve pain of the nerve that provides sensation to the face. Tikdularu is the traditional name. The brand name. Yeah, one of the worst pains known to mankind. The only good thing is it only lasts for a second. Everything is temporary. So you've used acupuncture to treat trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, yes. What about a root canal? Can you get a root canal with acupuncture? Yes. I mean, acupuncture provides a significant analgesia. It takes longer than a local anesthetic. It's probably 80% effective, whereas local anesthetic is 99% effective. Most people would opt to have local anesthetic unless for some reason they were allergic to local anesthetics or had some reason where they did not want to receive a local anesthetic injection. Do you think that the use of acupuncture in dentistry would make people less afraid to come to the dentist or more likely to go in for more frequent care or cleanings? Sometimes cleanings can be painful too. And uh, Yes. In some cases, it's a much easier and simpler and less invasive way of getting analgesia rather than having local anesthetic and being numb and having no feeling in your mouth for hours afterwards. Feeling like half your side of your face is all swollen up. Yeah. Even though it's not. <laughs> uh, why aren't more dentists employing acupuncture? It's very difficult to become certified in California. The course requires 80 hours of training. A week of work for a normal doctor or dentist? Two weeks. 80 hours. Well, most are working 80 hours a week, every week. <laughs> Which is a lot of time off of a private practice. It becomes very burdensome to get the certificate. They could hire another acupuncturist who already has a certificate. That's correct. You spent your career researching this and serving people, finding out whether acupuncture works in dentistry, and now you've left UCSF and acupuncture left UCSF with you in your imagination or vision or dreams or hopes, what would you like to see happen? I would like to see where the dental students could get training in acupuncture, which I used to do. If that would count towards their certification, they'd be able to utilize it. Is that in the works? Uh, no. Uh, are there any obstacles to getting it into the works? Uh, yes, you have the politics of a state board of dental examiners run by the state political system that licenses professionals to be able to do certain things, and it's very difficult to get them to change. Have any of them experienced acupuncture in their own dental work? I don't know, but I doubt it. Can dental students still take the course as an elective and still learn about it, even if it doesn't count towards their graduation? I don't know if anybody's teaching it now that I've left the university. So you need an heir to pass on this knowledge? Uh, yes. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add? No. Greg, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you for inviting me over to have this conversation. Enjoy the rest of your retirement. Thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Greg Goddard, dentist and acupuncturist in San Francisco, California.
धान धान तकिट तेतेट धातरकिट तेतेट कता गदी गेन गिर नग देने तार धार धातरकिट तेतेट कता गदी गेन धा धा गेन दीग दीगेन नाग नागेन तक तकिट धातरकिट तेतेट कता गदी गेन धा धातरकिट तेतेट कता गदी गेन धा धातरकिट तेतेट कता गदी गेन धा I'm speaking with Richard Loringer. He's a fiction writer and poet in Oakland, California, and he's written a book called Poems for Teeth. And I welcome you, Richard, to Nanjing Now. Thank you. Richard, tell us about Poems for Teeth. It's a strange book because I've written what looks to be a poem for each tooth in the mouth, which makes everybody go, "Oh, the kids will love this," but it's really it's a grown-up book. They're pretty intense some of them and most people look at it and say why in the why in the hell would you do this yeah why in the heck would you write a poem for each one of your teeth i mean it's something really beautiful about it and i just love to know what inspired you my i've had trouble with my teeth i had a lot of trouble with them uh, i'm in my 50s now in my 30s i just started having worse and worse trouble with my teeth and a lot of it was genetics and probably poor hygiene in my 20s I know no one else in their 20s has had poor dental hygiene but I did. <laughs> you know, no, it's not that uncommon. In fact, my younger friends, I will remind them. I won't say brush your teeth, I'll say look what could happen, you know. They started going bad in in ones and twos and had a lot of uh, extractions and a lot of pain, really. They just started breaking apart. So by my um early 40s, I'd lost almost half of my adult teeth. I'd gotten a few caps and a few bridges and stuff, but not entirely, and there were big gaps. I was feeling like I was going toothless, which is upsetting. Yeah, that's scary. I mean, to lose half your teeth by the time you're in your 40s, that's intense. Yeah, and it was affecting the way I speak actually I couldn't pronounce things that well sometimes and among other things I do a lot of readings and spoken word stuff and so forth and all of a sudden I had speech impediments you know which as a new thing was also startling and just told me how bad things were getting I mean that's something that we don't actually even think about we think about teeth as uh, offering a function for chewing food but we don't recognize that our teeth play a vital role in how we talk Oh absolutely they do they help us speak they help us digest besides just the chewing and and you know they get us jobs <laughs> Absolutely that is very true I mean and dates don't forget dates I never forget dates Did you notice that it affected your self-esteem about how you looked or you know you might have smiled less or anything like that? I'm a fairly confident person, but I definitely had a couple of depression periods, partially I think from the pain because I had a lot of pain for a bunch of years. I wasn't always constant, but sometimes it would be a lot in one month, several months a year and you know more and more procedures and all that sort of thing. So it definitely affected the way I felt about myself and about the world in general. Yeah, in some ways my self-esteem I wasn't going out a lot for a while. It also affected my health because I couldn't digest food that well, and I was became more and more limited as to the things I could eat. Can you give us some examples? I couldn't eat crunchier things, and I had to eat soft things for several years. I could eat no nuts, at least not whole nuts, and I like them, and I know that they're healthy. I had to have all my vegetables overcooked. Some salads were okay, so long as there was nothing crunchy in them, so I could eat, you know, leaves. But no carrots. No, and I'm a meat eater, but I could only eat soft. I eat a lot of fish, which is great. I couldn't have some of the heavier proteins. At least it was harder. Yeah, there's something kind of weird about a hamburger shake. Okay, yeah, I agree. <laughs> so I got another story about that, but for another time. Do you really have a story about a hamburger shake? Yeah, but it's a, it's a waiter story. I'm not going to talk about. Okay. It. I can't. I was 
probably was sort of at the worst point mentally with this. I'd not only lost a lot of teeth, I'd gotten a, an infection in my jawbone just from having so much work done inside, and, and those are incredibly painful. I've actually gone through two of them, and I've had surgeries, you know, in the bone. That's serious. It's kind of some of the worst pain. It's really super bad, like can't think, you know, pain. One fall, I don't know, about a little over 10 years ago, I thought, how am I going to raise money to get some of this stuff fixed? Now I needed to have some, if I wanted to speak the same again and chew better and live better, I needed to pay a lot of money to get replacement things, bridges and things put in and stuff like that. And we don't live in Italy where uh, dental care is covered by the National Health Insurance. No, and I, no, I was living in New York, too, where everything's very expensive. Unlike uh, the Bay Area. Yeah, right. <laughs> and at the time, I was teaching college, which pays very quite little, actually. I was an adjunct uh, with no insurance or anything like that. So I thought, maybe I should write a cute little book of poems for my teeth like a little chapbook or something, you know, and do readings and sell them around and say, you know, instead of a couple dollars, I'm going to ask everyone for $10 for this, and it's going to go into a fund to fix my teeth. And I thought, that's brilliant. You know? It is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I thought, oh, that'll help. I sat down to write cute little poems about my teeth. And keep in mind, at this point, I'd been going through dental pain for about eight years or something, and cute little poems did not pour out of me. Instead, this like intense, angsty, well, just intense stuff, not all angsty, really kind of like complicated, emotional stuff was coming out. First, when I started writing, it was sort of about teeth, but less and less, more stuff was about just living our lives. It turned into something else, and I had asked one of my publishers when I started the thing, hey, how would you feel about putting out a cute little stapled book, you know, but, oh, sure, he said, I'd love to help you, and I called him a few months later, and I said, not going to happen, it's going to be a full-length thing with all this big emotional stuff in it and he said okay well uh let me see it and that's how this came about and it's like five page poem for each tooth a five page poem for each yeah. tooth holy smokes yeah it's not tiny font i wanted them to each be about the same size because our teeth are about the same size here's where that cute little book went to each poem has a smaller poem in italics embedded in it like a cavity <laughs> but that's where the cute little small poems went to. And it became a process less about writing about my teeth or even make money to fix them and more about writing about our lives. You know, the teeth stopped being teeth and started being people and experiences and stuff like that. I don't know how else to say it. Like, for instance, we have four wisdom teeth. That's what they're called, and, you know, there are reasons for that. And I love that, and I wrote a poem to all four wisdom teeth, but they turned out to be these genius girls who, once they get together, they can solve anything. They're very special. And I thought, that's great. And so I made four teeth of intuition to balance them. And then for every other tooth, I started writing about different aspects of human experience. So we have a poem that's a tooth of uh, anger, and we have a poem that's a tooth of entropy and a tooth of myth, a tooth of numbers, a tooth of words, a tooth of memory. How beautiful is that? I'm almost mishearing you and hearing truth of wisdom and truth of anger. Maybe I still have a little speech impediment. I wrote a whole mouth full of people and experiences. And the reason it's called poems for teeth rather than poems about teeth is because they turned out to be less immediately about teeth. Most of them mention teeth. Teeth come in and out. You're always aware of teeth, but I thought of them more as poems written in honor of teeth. 
in the way that we might write a poem in honor of a friend. In honor of your nose. Yeah. I haven't gotten that far up the face yet. So That's great. I also love that the table of contents is actually a diagram of the upper and lower teeth, and each tooth is labeled according to the poem. Yeah, it's really lovely. That's their titles, Tooth of Resentment, Tooth of Endurance. I'm just flipping through and seeing them. Tooth of Grieving. That was an intense one to write. Tooth of Sex, Tooth of Nurturing. And they're very different in the way that people are. Like some of them are straightforward, you know, narrative poems that might tell a little story about a character who happens to also be the tooth. And some of them are like lyrical and, you know, sort of give you a mood. And some of them are a little more abstract than that. Some of them are rants. Some of them are not. Some of them are, are song-like. Wonderful. How long did it take you to cover all uh, 32 teeth? About two and a half years I worked on this. It's got a prelude to the um, the baby teeth. I was going to ask about the baby teeth. Yeah, I gave them a prelude because they're called the milk teeth. So it's got something called milk prelude. It's got a fantasy poem about having all 32 adult teeth. It's got a fantasy poem of having no teeth at all called edentulous fantasy. That's what that means is toothless. And a couple at the end that sort of sum up all of the teeth working together. And some of them know each other and some of them don't, you know, so they're mentioned in each other's poems occasionally. Some of them, the little poems in the middle are meant to be sung. So there's a song book at the back. Each tooth also has a piece of art made with calligraphy brushes. Did you make the art? About half of them. The other half were made by a, an artist I knew in upstate New York. Wow, you're very talented. You know, this seems like a very unusual idea for a book. I think it's brilliant and, and wonderful. And your publisher, you know, really obviously believed in you. Yeah, his name is Chris Funkhauser. Their press is called We, W-E, We Press. I think it turned out well. It didn't pay for a lot of dental care. Readers of poetry don't know quite what to make of it because it's not like a lot of other stuff. What makes it different? It's such a specific series, and it's got a lot of different voices in it. A lot of times, not always, but if you pick up a book of poetry, there'll be poems in similar voices and styles. And Is it different from your previous work as a poet? I tend to write in a lot of styles and voices. I was really just thinking of it as our teeth have different functions. We have different functions in each other's lives. The jaw has a variety of functions. In this book, it's a town. It's a continent. It's bedrock that might be cracking and shifting. And so the poems all have sort of different functions too. Wow, this is so great. I love it. So if somebody wants to buy your book or read your poems, how can they do that? Well, they can look up my website. That's richardlaringer.com. They can also go to We Press online. You know, if you Google poems for teeth, it's probably going to come up at the top of the list because there's no other title like that. Great, unique. Richard, would you like to share a poem with us? Sure, I could read... Uh, you know, maybe a short version, actually, but of the uh, milk teeth. The prelude. This is more abstract than some, but I think it's pretty and a little bit scary. Scary. The baby teeth the poem is scary. That's well, interesting. The, the baby teeth fall out. That's true, they do. Yeah. They're, <laughs> and they hurt when they come in. Yeah, so, so this poem is called Milk Prelude, and it also references teeth more than a lot of the other poems. Erupting from the mandible, the daughters of the blade begin to sing. Slice willy-nilly, slam, crush, and grind until you find your way into the sheer wild world. The cartilage becomes your dream, the dream 
a living fact of rock and canker, fantasy and chance, torque that canticles and finds flowers brewing in the unkempt mind. What nascent rock abides, child, what ooze calcifies and blooms, nearly weightless and transplendent with last dregs of the mist? What fierce cooing do you hear deep in the roots of antiphon? Maxilla answers with a cry, breaching bounds of latch and nerve. Smash, shimmy, shimmy, crush, crack and smile, and find your fill and fall into the dark, dark hole. The primal children gather in a game of spear and clash, piercing fracas, motley all around and laughing to the roofs of old garages. Balls fly, confetti flung, and bit lips rung. Taste this salt of effort and anthem on the hill as the troops may lay, cantering on the precipice where rocks shift, grass grows thin, and all the sky is a carnival. Deep within, the torque begins. Who can ignore precocious play, sprouting in dense game on a deep, deciduous plain? Oh, milk, oh, gleam of endless summer days, of sated alley-cats betrayed by a few shorn seasons, molted, torn, unceremoniously spat by brick itself on a rock the size of an orchard slipping slipping from the coast into the alga and ague of honking cars intermittent rain the smiles of an unreadable dream hung on the rack of a well-worn tome welcome to the island it is your bone Wow, fantastic. Thank you. That one's a little ominous and dreamlike. So, Richard, it's been really fascinating to hear about your journey with your teeth. What a creative way to respond. Actually, it sounds like a really healing way to respond to a very difficult time in your life. And I commend you for approaching it that way. I hope that's an example to others. And I hope that people will explore your poetry and take care of their teeth. <laughs> so do I. Don't forget to brush. And, but also, when you're healing, you know, make something because it really helps. Very well said, very well said. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you, of course. Richard Lorinder, writer and author of Poems for Teeth. Bing, tarikita di, na, tu, na, ka, ta, tarikita di, na, di, di, na, ta, na, ta, na, ta, 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 Neijing Now was written, edited, recorded, and produced by Dr. Jayshree Chandar. Website by Takahiro Naguchi. 
Tabla and Manjira played by Jayasi, compositions from Pandit Swapan Choudhury, bass guitar by Pedro Ordonez, drum set by Jisi Garcia, multi-instrumentalist Dave Rosenfeld. Concluding poem written by Jayasi, distributed by Gypsy Jace Productions, found at gypsyjace.net, J-Y-P-S-Y-J-A-Y-S dot N-E-T. You can find us on the web at nejingnow.org, N-E-I-J-I-N-G-N-O-W dot O-R-G. Naging Now is an entirely listener-supported endeavor. Please donate generously if these shows are beneficial and enjoyable. Your support is essential to keep this program alive.